was taken uh, to a, a courtroom during a divorce process, and the judge was hearing both sides of the case, mother, father, and he pulled the boy into his chamber for a private meeting, and he said, son, I've listened to both sides, and I truly believe that the best decision this morning is for you to be with your mother. And the, the boy looked up at her and said, but I really don't want to. She beats me. He's rather taken aback. The only other recourse is that you go and you be with your father. And he looked up at him and said, but I can't because he beats me too. And so the, the judge looks at him and says, but son, who will you go with? And he said, I think I'd rather stay with the Philadelphia Phillies because they never beat anyone. Now, I say that because many of you know that I am a diehard Philadelphia fan. Yes, amen. And uh, I did bring tape with me, and this is not going to stay up here. But I have been down here since 94. Philadelphia, or, or excuse me, Orlando still does not have a football team or a baseball team. So my heart usually reaches out to the Phillies and the Eagles. Now, let me just say that as it stands today, the Philadelphia Eagles are still 8-1, and one, and I'll put this down, and they are my favorite football team. And I think you'll be able to say when you have like a, a favorite team, you really, really enjoy seeing them win, don't you? And th honestly, this is the first time I've seen the Philadelphia Eagles play so well and they have an excellent sophomore quarterback in Carson Wentz, and they're winning, 8-1. and one. I've not seen that record, I think, since I was a kid. That was a long time. Don't go there now. That was a long time ago. But we love victory, don't we? And even though my Phillies aren't doing well, as a matter of fact, I think they had the worst record this last year. My eagles kind of helped that. But we, don't you like victory? Don't you like yourself walking in victory? And we need to talk about this, because as we have gone through this chapter of Romans 8, we've seen some interesting things unvelop concerning this concept of walking through sufferings. And we saw in verses 17 and 18, most particularly, that even in the midst of our suffering, there is this awesome opportunity for us as God's children and His chosen to be able to reflect His glory, even in the midst of suffering. We talked about this, uh, this tapestry that God is weaving in our lives with various life circumstances. And us, as we seek to walk in biblical principles in response to these life circumstances, and many times in this tapestry, as we're looking on the underneath side, we see all these tied-off places and thread that changes from red to black and light gray, and you're thinking, light gray, what a putrid color. Does anybody here? No, I'm not even going to go that. Our chairs are light gray, aren't they? But the truth is, I mean, light gray is really not my favorite color. But when we get to heaven, it says in verse 18 that God will reveal to us, to us, his glory. And it is that glory that he has been working in us through these sufferings 
that we have because we are children of God. Now, in all honesty, wouldn't you love to go through life with zero sufferings? Anybody on board with that one? Great God, just remove all of these sufferings. And typically when we pray, isn't that the first thing that comes out of our mouth? God, would you please remove this trial, remove this suffering, remove this pain that I'm going through. And, and yet we began to understand last week this concept that even in the midst of that suffering, that God, and I'm gonna, I made the analogy of the light gray thread, when we get to heaven and we see the glory that God has done in us, that really is reflecting his glory, it's really the silver lining. That's really what gray thread is, isn't it? like gray thread. Silver lining through all of these tragedies in our life that in this amazing way that today we cannot understand. And God invites us to trust him. And so we live our lives very simply for his glory. For his life. And we put it this way. Our goal in this life is to maximize his glory. To maximize his glory. And can I say that is not an easy thing to do? Um, I think we desire to be champions. I, I did, I was tempted to entitle the message today, The Eagles. But I thought about that, and, and I, I'm, I wasn't sure that was fair. And I, I have this little shirt here, and it, is, it has a huge eagle's uh, wing on it up here. It's got a picture of the cross, the word devotion, and it says under here that they will soar on wings as eagles. And that's really what we are in, in the scriptures inviting us to do. This is from Isaiah 4, chapter 40, by the way. He is inviting us to soar on wings as eagles, to have his perspective to be able to rise above circumstances in life. So instead of calling it the Eagles, and honestly, I did think that was a little hokey, I decided to entitle the message, The Elite. The Elite. Now, you're going to discover why in just a few minutes, but right now, I just want to dangle that, and you ask the question, The Elite. But God has called us, his people, to be the elite. We're going to see this. The elite is like the rangers, the armed forces, the SEALs. Not those that go like this, but the, the SEALs, the Navy SEALs, trained. And I want you to have this picture in your mind of this reconnaissance mission as they're going into the village at night seeking to rescue this, I don't know, doctor or whoever that the enemy has captured and that your job has been to rescue and see Christ has accomplished this reconnaissance mission in rescuing us, scripture says, from our sins. And we are called to be the elite to be able to rise above these circumstances and sufferings that we go through. As we read now this passage that we're going to continue on with in Romans 8, we're going to start with verse 28. I want to do that, and then let's make some comments and observations and, and really bring it home. And what is this idea of God's elite? We need to ask that question. Verse 28, it says, and we know that God works together all things for our good. And I'm sorry, I'm not reading the NIV on that phrase. I prefer this as far as how it translates the Greek. God works all things together for the good of those who love him 
who have been called according to his purpose. We're going to need to talk about his purpose today. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? Aside from, I don't understand this, God. Well, then should we say in response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, that is God's sake, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor ain't neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This first half of verse 28, I want us to see actually this verse as a pivotal verse as now he segues from this idea of God using suffering in the lives of those who love him to God permitting suffering for those he loves. You see, the difference there is this first half of the verse. The focus is that we love God. And the second half, and we're going to see this develop, really is that God loves us. And we see that throughout. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so we continue with this theme of suffering, but Paul, to now see it more from God's perspective, not just us loving God and God, how are you going to work this out? And I'm going to trust you that there's this silver lining and I'm trying everything I can to maximize your glory. Work in me because I love you. And God's promise is all things, all things that happen to you in your life, all things will work together for the good of those who love him. And then it goes on and he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I'm going to suggest to you that that phrase encapsulates this very heartbeat that God has for his people, his love, his love that he has for those whom he has called. We're going to see that. So let's do that. To, to begin with, though, 
as we now move into, away from the, the idea that we love God, so he works all things for our good, to God loves us, and we're going to see things from his sovereign perspective right now. That's what the rest of this chapter does. It shows us a picture from God's perspective on suffering. Turn with me then. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is Peter on the sermon on the day of Pentecost as he is addressing the crowd and in essence saying, yeah, what's happening here was prophesied about and he begins to preach the gospel by telling them about how they crucified the Messiah. And he says this in verse 23, this man, referring to Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, amen, church? Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I, I love preaching on that last part, of the, but I'm not doing that today. I'm preaching on the first part that I just read. And I want us to see this set of glasses or two lenses through which we are to see all of life. The first, it says, by God's set purpose. The second is God's foreknowledge. God's set purpose Contrary to um, what the Terminator movie series wants to teach us, that the future can change according to God's set purpose, it cannot. It is set. Now, just so that you know, your future is, it, it, even though it is set, it is a potential future from your perspective. And you have choices to make here. So I don't want you to think that this is determinism. There's nothing that you can do. Because even though God says that things fall within his set purpose, he also says pray. And by prayer, we have the ability to see God change things. See, that's the potential future. But in God's eyes, he knows what's going to happen. You understand what I'm saying, right? It's his set purpose. He knows this. And he has planned it from the beginning of time. But Christ was crucified also according to God's foreknowledge. Now, this is a different perspective. Understand this. When he's talking about the cross, he is talking about the most significant, wicked, evil crime ever perpetrated among men. Ever. The greatest sin, crucifying the Son of God. And what does it say? He was crucified by God's set purpose. God planned the cross. God planned the death of his son. Well, wait a second. You mean, God, that you killed Jesus? Well, that's not what it's saying, because it then goes on to say, not just according to his set purpose, but according to God's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge of events. And this foreknowledge of events, it's clear that man's responsibility remains intact. So as we try to weave together this, these concepts of God's sovereignty with man's responsibility and how do they fit together, we are trying to understand something that truly 
is beyond our understanding. Now, I realize that there is and has been for several hundred years those on one side, and for the most part, they would fall into the Calvinist camp. They're seeing God's sovereignty, and they focus on God's sovereignty, not to do without man's responsibility, but the focus is God's sovereignty, very heavily so. And those on the other side, Jacob Arminius and those his followers, Arminianism seeks to focus on man's responsibility, though not trying to discard God's sovereignty, but each of them are seeing it from a different perspective. And I'm just going to share with you my personal opinion. Both sides have a tendency, a tendency to be able to take certain passages and fit them into their personal theological perspective. And the reason why they do this, and I'm just going to lay it out for you this way, there is a mystery that God purposefully planned when we start to try and synthesize God's sovereignty with, his, with man's responsibility. When we try to understand election in view of faith, and how does that work? And what about the non-elect? And God, I'm not sure I understand this. And so we have questions. As we go through life, we understand God planned all of this. So is God the author of sin? No, 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 no. Job 1, God truly afflicted Job, but we know from Job 1 how he did it. Satan asked him, and God gave him permission to. And so Satan was the one who afflicted Job, but it's also said that God afflicted him, but did so through Satan. And God did this in order to do something in Job and through Job. And the same thing for us today. Now, I want to be careful as we go through Romans 8, because though we have these two perspectives, these two lenses through which we can understand God's sovereign working and how man responds to this, we want to be careful that there is going to be a mystery in this that we need to leave intact. And as we go through this, let me just, let me just say this. When God talks about his purposeful choosing or predestination that is in our text here in Romans 8, he does not seek to synthesize this with man's faith. Actually, this portion of Romans 8 looks at God's sovereignty through that one monocle of God's set purpose and not his foreknowledge. So he uses the word foreknow, and we're going to need to understand that. He does not look at it through, well, so what's man's response in all of this? You'll never find the word faith in this last portion of Romans 8. As a matter of fact, you'll never find man's response in the faith face of suffering, except that God has set us up to be conquerors. And so the purpose for Paul doing this is not to demonstrate how we have loved God and God will see us through sufferings, but how God will constantly keep us connected with his love. And so it purposefully looks at suffering now through this one monocle of God's set purpose. But let me just understand that when we go through this, you're going to have questions because you're going to want to look at it through the other perspective, well, God's foreknowledge of events. That is, so how is man responsible in all of this? And I understand that. It's just that this passage doesn't answer that question. What do 
about the issue of eternal security and the possibility of apostasy? That is not a question that Paul brings up here. Now, I, I was raised in a Calvinist background, and I do lean in that direction, but I am not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian either. And, and I have just, as I have wrestled through the, the last several decades of Scripture and God's, res, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and how does election and faith fit together, all I can say is this. Paul says in Ephesians 1, for he, God, chose us in him. From the Calvinist perspective, they understand it, for he chose us to be in him. And so election causes us to believe. From the Arminian perspective, they say, no, 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 no. For he chose us because he saw that we would be in him. And that's how they synthesize this. My God looked down the tunnel of history, saw that I would believe in Jesus, and then he chose me. It's just that that is a very weak understanding of God's foreknowledge. And as we're going to see in a moment, it doesn't fit. And so God does not choose us based on the fact that one day he saw, Mike Curtis is going to believe in me. Why, I'm going to choose him. Because that makes God's sovereign choosing of me, his grace, dependent on me choosing him. And from the Calvinist perspective, you know, I'm just going to choose certain people. They will come to faith. And I lean in that direction. But you know what? The Bible does not tell us. As a matter of fact, there is no passage in all of Scripture that says God elected us unto faith. Here's what it does say. God chose us to be holy and blameless. That follows faith. God chose you unto salvation. That follows faith. God appointed or chose you unto eternal life. Acts 3, 13, 48. Eternal life follows faith. God elected you unto sanctification. That follows faith. God chose you to be, predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's in our text. That follows faith. Nowhere in scripture does it says God predestined or chose you unto faith. I'm just going to tell you that this concept of God's election and man's faith are parallel concepts and we leave it at that. One does not cause the other. We leave it at that. And that leaves a mystery in this, and here is why. And this is my personal take on it, okay? My personal understanding. God did something before the creation of this world. He chose us in Christ. He did that before the creation of the world. When God created the world, he created space, time, and matter, those three things. That is what we live in. You do not know life outside of those three elements time, space, and matter. But God did this sovereign thing called election outside of time, before time began. And here we are, this finite people, arguing and trying to preempt mystery from the synthesis of God's sovereignty and, and, and man's faith, man's responsibility, in view of the fact that God did that thing outside of this existence that I live in called time. He did something outside of time, and it affects me as I live in time. Can I ask you this? Do you understand in any remote way what it is like to live outside of time, to make choices outside of time, to do anything outside of time? And I hope your answer is, Pastor Mike, I have no clue. That, that is the right answer, by the way, because you, you don't understand what that is. It's like asking a blind man, please, can you describe for me the color red? 
can you describe someone who's been born blind? Can you describe for me the color blue? Now, John, maybe you can help me out here. They might be able to describe, uh, um, or, or if you work with anybody who is, has been blind, um, John works with people who are deaf, but if you come across these people, is it easy to describe concepts of color? Many times, from what I understand, they can describe like lightness and darkness, but they cannot understand or describe color to you because they've never experienced it. How can I understand this concept of predestination that took, outside, took place outside of time if I can't even understand what life is like outside of time? I have no clue about that. And so I'm only bringing this up to say, guys, we're going to be looking at Romans 8 through one monocle. God's set purpose. You're going to have questions. Can we leave some of these questions aside? Because I believe God, which Scripture, by the way, says the revealed, excuse me, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children that we may obey his law. Can we leave that mystery? Can we just be humble enough to say, you know what, I don't understand that, and that's okay. So now let's, let's turn to Romans 8, and let's try and understand what God has revealed to us. <clears throat> it starts off by talking about foreknowledge, but it uses the verb, doesn't it? <clears throat> Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Fair enough. In Acts 2, it talks about foreknowledge, but it's foreknowledge of events, not foreknowledge of people. That's significant. When Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you, does that mean he didn't know your name? That he didn't know events about your life? Actually, he did. He knows their sin, and they never repented of it. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Not I never knew about you. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You see how the verb know is relational in knowledge, in, in uh, in its in how it's used. And foreknowledge is the very same way. Those whom God foreknew, it is those that God loved beforehand. Not that he knew things about beforehand, but that God lavished us with love. God, before the world was created, said, I love my Curtis. And because of that, nothing that he has done, because of that, I'm choosing him because I want my Curtis, because he desperately will need this, to be conformed to the image of my son Jesus. This is all that we know. I mean, there's other passages we could, we could look at, but the, that leaves many questions that we cannot answer. And those whom he predestined, by the way, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And we learned last week that God does this through this difficulty, the struggle that we call suffering. The sufferings of Christ that now we participate in. And how do you do that without getting ticked off at God? How do you go through those sufferings and you say, regardless of whether I understand the reason for this, I will seek to maximize his glory and I will love him and I will serve him no matter what. And this is what we've been called to. God is conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he called. Now we saw there at the end of verse 28. 
that those who have been called according to his purpose, his set purpose, And so Paul takes us through this look of the sovereign working of God in the affairs of men, that he foreknew us, and from that foreknowing us, predestined us to this awesome plan of beginning more and more and more from conversion on to look like Jesus until that one day in which he reveals that glory in us, Romans 18. And then we begin to see that we see then at that moment the top of the tapestry. And we said, oh my goodness, why did I fight you, God, here? Look what you ended up doing. If I had complied, God, what more could you have done? And then I'm hoping that this stirs up in us, as I believe this is the reason why Paul writes about this, a hunger for the glory of God. And we're not going to lose focus on this glory of God. We're going to see it come up again. But God has this set purpose that he is marching us through and that he is calling you unto himself. And all I can say is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today and he is transforming your life, that you are called and that calling was according to his set purpose that he declared before the creation of the entire world, before time began. And I hope to some degree that blows your mind. Because you are not going to be able to understand that you just simply respond, God, thank you for choosing me. It's not, well, God, what about Joe over here? No, it's God, you chose me. I don't understand. There was nothing in me why you would choose me, but you did. And I came to faith in Christ, and you are now presently conforming me to the image of your son. And those whom he called, it says he justified Now, let me say this again. Throughout this letter, Paul is saying we are justified by faith, but he doesn't say that here. It just says justified. Why? Because Paul is giving us this perspective of all that God is doing in us as his people from that one monocular perspective, that one lens, God's set purpose. Did we have to believe? Yes, of course we did. Justified by faith from chapter one on. He doesn't bring up faith here for that very reason. God said, what is that purpose? It is a triumphant purpose. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Now, we remember glorification takes place in this life. We will be fully glorified in heaven. Now, the verb glorify has two meanings. Don't don't lose track here. We regularly use glorify to mean praise. That's not what he's talking about here. You are not going to get praised, okay? That is not the goal in your life. That's not the glorifying that God is wanting to do. The glorifying is reflecting his glory, being transformed, it says, from glory to glory. This thing that God is doing in us that's transforming us is reflecting Jesus. He used this phrase, being conformed to the image of his son. That is this glorification process. And ultimately, and he does get into this previously in chapter 8, that we will, when the sons of God are revealed, that's you and me. Sorry, ladies, the, the word sons is generic. Sons and daughters. When the sons are revealed, when the children of God are revealed, and it's finally the culmination of, of history in which Christ has come back and he's ushering in this kingdom of God that will, live, that will go on forever and ever and ever. That we will live this new heaven and new earth. And in that kingdom, we will be transformed. We receive our resurrected glorious body that will be just like Jesus's, Scripture says 
Philippians 3.21. And we will be glorified, second definition, at that moment fully. But in this life, we are being glorified. This is God's process. This is what God is doing in our life. And then he asks this question, what then shall we we say in response to this? I don't understand. Fair enough. But that's not what he says. What then shall we say in response to this? God, I don't understand how faith works into this. Fair enough question, but that's not where he goes. He says this. If God is for us, let me keep in step with what I'm talking about here, Romans. Talking about things from God's perspective, his set purpose. What shall we say in response to that? If God is for us, Who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. There is no one that can be against you. I want you to think of that enemy of yours, that that boss that keeps riding you in just this perfectionist way, and you're trying to grow, but he rides you. He doesn't just ride you. He rides everybody in his office, and he, he is wrestling with the flesh, and he wants so much to be promoted. He takes it out on you, and he wants everyone to be perfect like he apparently is, and this is grinding you. He cannot be against you. From God's perspective, who can be against us? No one, not even the devil himself. Though he opposes us, from God's set purpose, even Satan himself is a pawn on the chessboard of God's sovereign plan. That he is working even what the devil does in your life for your good. Going back to verse 28. You see, from God's set purpose, he is marching you forward. You're going to get to where he's marching us forward to in this very reason why I'm entitling the message the elite. Nobody can be against you. And And he goes on and he says, well, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And he were to understand this concept of chosen in that word predestined. You are chosen, you're the elect. Then who can even bring a charge against you? And the answer is, hey guys, remember what I said way back there in, in chapters 4, 5, 6, uh, and even in some in chapter 3, you've been justified by faith. There is no accusation that can ever be laid against you because you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. In the gospel, it says a righteousness has been revealed to us. And that we discovered was Christ's perfect life on earth. So that that, that we actually stand in that righteousness, not in our own righteousness, because that is completely inadequate. And it is not just that we need a not guilty verdict because our sins have been washed away. That's one part of it. But we need more in God's court of law. Perfection, righteousness. And that can't come from us. Because all our righteousness are like what? Yeah, filthy rags. And we desperately need this righteousness from Christ. And so... Who is going to be able to bring a charge against you? You're in Christ Jesus. 
they bring a charge against you. It's to my son. You know, it's almost as if he's, yeah, come on, bring on the accusations because they will not amount to anything in my court of law. And you get this sense of God kind of puffing up his chest a, a bit here. As if, who can, who's going to bring a charge against you? You're my chosen. You're my chosen. Oh, send them to me. <laughs> can, you, can you almost hear? Send them to me. Yeah, because here's the answer he gives. You've been justified. My son, he justified. Can, can the devil himself have any charge against my son? I'd like to hear it. You, know, you kind of get this father's heart as it swells up and says, absolutely not. Because this has to do with my son's righteousness, not yours. Who's going to condemn us? Verse 34. And if you remember in the very beginning of this chapter, there is therefore now no, what church? No, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no charge that can be brought against you, and certainly no declaration of guilty, and he deserves punishment. You know what? I do deserve punishment. I do. But Christ rescued me from that judgment, and he clothed me in his righteousness, and for that reason alone, by faith I accept this, by, for that reason, his righteousness no charge is going to be able to be laid against him. Why? Because I am in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've been looking at this concept of being in Christ Jesus, and we're going to step into it a little bit more here as he asks this next question, who shall separate us from the love of God? Because that is the very heart of the question. He's been asking question upon question. What should we say in response to this? Who's going to have any charge against you? Who's going to condemn you? And then he asks, who? Because I want to know, who shall separate you from the love of Christ? And now he begins to talk about this immense love of Christ. Now, un understand this. He does not ask the question, what shall separate God's love from you? That's not the question. The question is, what is going to pull you from this love of Christ? Is suffering going to do that? Is suffering sufficient? to come between the love of Christ and you. Our trials, our persecutions. You see, he's not just talking about the persecutions and the sufferings that we receive because we're witnessing, because we bear the name of Christ. But he's talking about sufferings that you experience every single day the struggles and the difficulties at work or in the home or this estranged relationship that you're wanting healed. And then he asks this question, or, or, or at the end of that question, he makes this statement. He makes a quote from the Old Testament, and he says, for your sake, that is, for God's sake, we face death all day long. 
for God's sake. You see, he's really a saint. Let me say it a different way. For the glory of God. For the glory of God, we die every day. We face death every day. We go through these sufferings and trials every single day for God's glory. See, he hasn't left this subject that really is at the heart and soul of what he is talking about here, but he's now looking at through this one lens of God's set purpose, God's glory. And then he comes to this. Let me just say something right here. When we are going through suffering, isn't it true that we want to see a purpose emerge from the, this trial, this suffering, that is sufficient benefit for me, for somebody, to warrant my trial, my suffering? Isn't, isn't this what you look for? You know what, God, I'm going to go through this suffering because this is going to be the outcome. This is going to be the benefit. And we're always weighing the trials and the difficulties that we go through. And if you don't see the benefit, isn't it natural? Doesn't this happen to you? God, why did you allow this in my life? I see no benefit in this. Why did you allow the enemy to come in here? Look at the damage that was done, God. I don't understand. Do you not love me? And we tend to weigh life's difficulties and struggles in view of their possible benefits. And many times those benefits will not be seen until heaven. And so what are you going to do between now and then? What are you going to do? And Paul, he's trying to stir up this answer this response in you, then I will just trust in God. I don't understand, but I am going to trust in him because I know that, that he has control of my life and his set purpose. He is marching me forward to be conformed more to the image of Jesus. And then he says this. He says, can anything separate you from the love of Christ? And he answers it with this resounding, absolutely not. No. He kind of sets us up here. No. It's like he shouts it, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, smiley face. No. In all of these things, all of the, the sufferings, the facing death every day, the trials, the hardships, the persecutions, etc., etc., all of these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This Greek word for more than conquerors, it is actually in verb form, but it is that verb to conquer, but there is a prefix. You know what a prefix is? It's that little beginning to a word that makes it a compound word, like overcome means to come over, so to speak, rise above, overcome. This is the word, the word that we translate more than is the Greek word hupa or huper. In huper, 
that means more than, beyond. Now, you're familiar with the, the term hypodermic needle, right? See, that's a prefix that's the exact opposite. It means below or underneath, dermic meaning skin, and that's a needle that goes underneath the skin, a hypodermic needle. There's no such thing as a hyperdermic needle because that needle would go above the skin. That doesn't work. This idea of hyper, we actually get the prefix in our English vocabulary, super, from this Greek word. He has called you to be conquerors, but you know what? More than a conqueror. He's called you to not just be a victor, but a super victor. And so I'm choosing this word elite. He has called you to be the elite force, that is the elite conquerors. Because in, in our vocabulary, a word elite means the best of the best of the best, sir, right? That is those people who have been trained, those people who are the best, those people that when they face a circumstance, they, they seem to know exactly what to do. You see, this is at your disposal. God has made you super conquerors, the elite, if you will. Now, by elite, I'm not focusing on the fact that you're chosen and you're more special than other people and get into that. It's not what I'm talking about here. I'm getting this idea that God has created something that is way beyond the normal in us through him who loved us. Now, I don't want to settle with uh, this concept of above average. You're an above average conqueror. If someone were to tell you, you know what? You have above average intelligence. That could mean you have 101 IQ. And I'm not sure how much that's saying, but at least say you're above average. He is not saying just a little bit above what most people are. That's who you are. No. The elite, the, the super, the hyper, those who are way above that which is considered a conqueror. And so God has made you a super conqueror. Now, understand this, that when you face a trial, because you are in Christ Jesus, he has empowered you to not just barely overcome, not to just be this above-average kind of conqueror kind of guy or girl. He has called you to be able through him to rise way above or to soar on wings as eagles, to rise way above your suffering. He has called you and he has empowered you because you are in Christ and therefore through him you are able to face these sufferings with strength and determination and purpose, and you are able to not succumb to them because you are in Christ. And so we have this idea that we can conquer through Christ. He is my strength. If you're out trying to face the world in your own strength, good luck to that. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I've tried it. doesn't work. When you start relying on your intelligence alone and your strength alone, 
and you start resting on your laurels. Well, I, I'm, I'm a mature Christian. I can face this. And you somehow forget how integrally connected you need to be with Christ, how only victory is through him, and how utterly dependent you must be upon him for this victory today. If you lose sight of that, you will fall. Because what he's promising is you are a, an elite conqueror through Christ. Through Christ. And then he says, through Christ who loved us. And you kind of get this feeling like, oh, like that's nice. You're, a, you're an elite conqueror through him who loved you. That's, that's such a sweet story. And we kind of get, because we hear about Christ's love and, and Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we can kind of lose sight of the power of this concept that God loves me. Even when I was his enemy, even when I spit in his face, even when I trampled his truth upon under my feet because I was determined to do life my way. That is how I treated God. That is how he treated Christ. And it was that that put the nails in his hands, in his feet, and hung him on that cross. That according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, he did. For you. Super conquerors. Through him. Who loves you so much. He gave you everything. 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 Maybe it's hard for us at times to really grasp the depth of this love that we cannot be separated from because we have tended to trivialize it. Zach shared a story this past Wednesday, and as I was meditating on this passage, I felt led to, to share with you. Now, some, many of you were in that Bible study. This is not going to be new to you, but it was, it was a powerful story. It made me open. And I'm going to share this with you because maybe since you were in grade school, you kept singing that song. And it's, I love that song, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We sang that song. Yeah, Jesus loves me. When we grasp the profound depths and implications of this love of God, it will undo you. In the colonial days, when men and women and even children were offered on the slave block, a woman was brought out to be sold. She was actually a very beautiful woman, and everyone there knew what would happen to that woman by the man that bought her. And it was not good. And as this man began to weave his way into the crowd and understand what was going on and saw that woman and hearing the bids go higher and higher, 
He began to join in the bidding process. And as the, as the price began to rise higher and higher, and there was one price that was finally given, it seemed like that it was going to settle it all. The man stepped forward, and he didn't offer a price that was just a little bit higher. He did this to end it all. He offered twice as much. Deal done. You're mine. And he went up to claim his prize, and as her hands were bound with rope, he grabbed the rope, and she began to curse him and spit upon him. And you foul, wicked man, I know what's in your heart. How could you do this? Yeah, you own me now. And he said, ma'am, I need to go across the street. You're going to follow me, and I need you to go into the courthouse. We're going to settle some things, and I'll be right out. And as he crossed the street, she began to hurl more curses and spit upon him, and he tied the rope around the post, and he said, I need you to wait here, and I will be out shortly. And she spit in his face one more time as he left. It took a little bit longer than he anticipated as she waited there in her anger, and as he came out with a paper in his hand before he could say anything, she spit in his face one more time. And she said, you are such a vulgar man. And she said, ma'am, listen to me. These are the papers of your emancipation. My emancipation, whatever, you cruel, wicked, foul man, and spit upon his face one more time. And he's, he's ma'am, you do not understand. These papers, they're yours. You are free. I purchased you to set you free. And she paused there for a moment as tears began to fall from her cheek. And she fell on her knees, weeping, saying this, I will be your slave for the rest of my life. Can I ask you this? Have you ever spit in Jesus' face? Have you ever hurled your curses at him? As you're going through trials, even as Christians shaking our fists at God, I don't understand. Why have you allowed this in my life? And Jesus is trying to get our attention. And, and I love the way Zach does this with little Rusty. He says, Rusty, no, look at me. Look, no, 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 no. Don't look, look at me. And Jesus is saying to you, my friend, my, my beloved, my chosen Look at me and see how much I have loved you. See how much I have loved you. And when we understand that profound love of Christ, and we immerse ourselves in it, and that is the purpose of worship for us again, to immerse ourselves in this beyond understanding love of Christ and to be moved by it for him to call us again, follow me. He purchased your freedom. He actually purchased your freedom to set you free so that you would willingly follow him and yes, as his slave for the rest of your life. That is how much Christ loves us.
you, my friends, have been made far above the typical conqueror. He has made you this. As long as you live your life through him who loved you, and there's only one way to do that, and that is for you every waking moment of every day of your life to have his love and joy and nothing else. Because when your eyes begin to shift to the struggles and the sufferings of life, they will begin to settle in like a fog over your mind. And you can get lost. Church, stay focused. Look to him who died for you, who loved you. You are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. And he says this, for I am convinced. I am utterly and profoundly convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, whatever the future may bring for you, whatever success or failure, whatever triumph or tragedy, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, even the powers of men, and the powers of government. Neither height, nor depth, nor anything else, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from that glorious, profound, unfathomable love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You are God's elite. He made you this, that you would be able to rise up in the midst of suffering. And his promise is, in Christ, you cannot be separated from that love. And again, this is God's set purpose. This is what I've called you to, to walk in this love, to triumph in the midst of suffering and cruelty by the hand of other men and women. And you will receive that crown of glory then when you trust me.